welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychiatrists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Noah Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. This episode is the 11th in our 12-part series with Mr. Trout. For previous episodes, log on to the Knowledge Center at chadoc.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. We are coming to the end of our series with Michael Trout, and we'll continue our discussion with him today. So thank you, Michael, for being here with us again. Very nice to be here one last time. Yes. Um, So one of the things that I wanted to speak with you about or hear from you about today um, is you worked with many, many babies, and some of them are, well, many of them obviously are now adults. I know um, some think sometimes you have thought about even doing some follow-up with some of them. You know, you've talked different times about a project with that. I know you've done some follow-up with some of them, but what lessons do you think you have learned from those years of practice with those people who are adults now, but who you once worked with as babies? Well, I suppose the primary one is nothing new to you or uh, even to me, really, it's about it's about modesty. I think what I've learned is that <clears throat> we don't know anything near what we think we know. Uh, even when we're wringing our hands, it's it's immodest to wring our hands about a particular baby because we really don't know what's going to happen. Um, and by that, I don't mean to to undercut what we've learned about early experience and its impact, long lasting impact on all aspects of personality and character and moral development and behavior and choices and so on. I fully support that. But I've just learned that we need to be very modest about what all of that means and all the variables that are, are available to any, well, frankly, to any organism to any organism, even a plant or a bug, but particularly humans, with respect to how that organism adapts to what it has confronted in the environment. So I I know for a fact that some of the babies I worked with early on have done very, very badly. Uh, I know of at least one that that, uh, I lost track of the mother after only one or two sessions. And I read in the paper a, a, a few years later that she at least a woman by that name, had drowned her toddler in, in, the, in a river. Um, so, so some of the things that looked really bad were really bad, and they stayed really bad. Some of the things that looked bad um, morphed into other versions of that which is bad. So um, moms who were severely depressed uh, sometimes raised babies that were not themselves depressed and whose development overall was okay, but the babies developed other kinds of disorders that we might not necessarily have predicted. Uh, 
key among them would be borderline personality disorder. Um, <clears throat> so children, some of the children who did very well in overall development had a lasting worry tucked way deep inside them that they would lose their mother, that she would abandon them. Um, and they would then choose partners who would either be very likely to do that, or they would choose partners whom they would then drive crazy with their abandonment fears that they might do that. Uh, or they would raise their own children in such a way that the children could not possibly individuate because the mother carried such a lasting impression of, of uh, abandonment or the fear of abandonment, feeling of abandonment, not just fear, the feeling of abandonment. And would 30 years later, imagine that her own baby was going to do that, so to speak, to her, was going to abandon her. And she would clutch at that baby as if it was the last possession on earth. And the baby had no chance to individuate, either the first time round at 20 months or so to um, the mother would sometimes go into a rage about the baby's efforts to just maybe button his shirt or pour his own milk or do something on on his or her own. And the mother would accuse the baby of thinking he was so smart. You think you can just run away from me and get big and, and just not care about me a bit um, and make the child feel awful. Or the mom would have a terrible time with it the second time around when the child was 11 or 12 or 13. Um, so my point wasn't, I didn't mean to get so deep into that, but my point was merely that the variations on outcome um, have been profound and have caused me to just be awfully modest and thoughtful before I make too many long-term uh, predictions. Yes, and could I maybe offer the other side of that, partly based on my experiences at Chaddock? Sometimes it's the opposite. You think this is going in a bad direction. I haven't been helpful. And 10 or 15 years later, somebody's doing really well. And what's really fun, if, if, if any of us ever gets a chance, we should grab it is to track why exactly. We shouldn't just be interested in why things go down the toilet. We should be interested not just in the fact of certain children doing well, but we ought to track exactly why. What exactly happened? Not generally, precisely. Was there a neighbor lady? Did they move? And they moved next door to a neighbor lady who had unusual characteristics and became a secondary uh, attachment figure. Um, did somebody die? And actually, that changed things in a positive direction. Uh, did somebody acquire a pet? Or did, was there a school teacher? What, what influences were there that made such a profound difference? Yes. It reminds me a little bit of the follow-up article to Freiburg's Ghosts in the Nursery that um, was done about angels in the nursery by Alicia Lieberman, that we need to know um, other forces for good or positive. And we can know them. 
I, I don't think we should any longer pretend that that's either uninteresting or inaccessible to us. We're good at social history taking, and we can know, we can find out who those angels were and why they had the effect they did if we just take it, take it into our hands to do so. And maybe I'm assuming by you saying that, that we often don't. Oh, I think we rarely do. At best, we think it's interesting. Maybe we don't think anything about it at all. In fact, for some, it may even be a bit of a threat that a child that we predicted would not do well does. And maybe we turn our back for that reason. I don't know. Maybe we're just not drawn as much to developmental success as we are to psychopathology. Yes. The other thing I've learned that's really stood out to me um, is how we don't let it go. It being not only the early event, the early experience that we had, but our narrative about it. We just, and I don't mean this in a way that sounds, how should I say? I don't mean to suggest that early bad stuff sticks like peanut butter to you and you can never, ever, ever scrape it off. I don't mean that. What I do mean is that stuff that happens to you sticks like peanut butter and then it transmutes into a hundred other versions and there are there are so many ways we can adapt and so many ways we can convert into either other symptoms or other ways of being um, <clears throat> and i i think that's also worth worthy of our tracking mm -hmm. one, one mom uh, who gave away her child when she was about two um, it's a very complicated and long story, but the short version is that uh, many years later, that mom showed up at a lecture of mine and sneaked a note to me uh, while I was standing at the front end answering questions of a crowd that had gathered. And she was obviously waiting to talk to me, but couldn't wait. So she sneaked a note to me, and on it, she just let me know that that baby was now 19 was a studying psychology at Michigan State, and she thought I'd like to know that. And I found it terribly interesting, not only that the child was doing well, as we've already discussed, but I think she was also transmitting some important information to me by letting me know that this little girl who lost her mommy inexplicably and suddenly at two is now studying psychology. And I'll bet you a dollar she works with children. Mm-hmm. One father um, who fell into a horrendous depression uh, at the time of the pregnancy for his firstborn child. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, again, a very complicated story, but the short version is that uh, I discovered that his mother had abandoned him at birth um, for about three months. She, he didn't see her at all and wouldn't have seen her probably even then, except that a family friend found out what was going on and just threw a fit and made, them, made the mother return. But I discovered that the, the pregnancy for that man, when that is when he was being made, the pregnancy followed by a very short time, the death of a previous child. 
And that previous child had never been discussed in the family. It was a complete mystery. Um, the man, when he came to me in this terrible state of depression decades later, uh, upon the uh, pregnancy for his firstborn child, thought he remembered some funny pictures of a baby in the family photo albums, but he didn't know who it was. It had never been talked about. She lived about a year and then died. And then the mother and father immediately conceived this next child. Uh, the mother abandoned that child, was reunited. All was well, allegedly. But the father grew up then to get pregnant and to fall into this tremendous depression, which he was able to name. He said, it's like a train is coming down the tracks toward me, and it's going to destroy my boy and me. And he set about to find out all that had happened. That's when he learned about the sister. That's when he learned about the death. And that's when he wrote out a long narrative and actually put it on film during our therapy for his boy. He said, someday he's going to grow up and he's going to need to know what happened to him, that his daddy got awful depressed when he was coming. And I bet he'd like to know why his daddy did that, what happened to his daddy. So he made the whole story to save and protect his son. Not everybody does that. And that, of course, then played a huge part in the son's adaptation to his father's depression. But as if that story isn't interesting enough, I contacted that father, by the way, about 25 years after the therapy we had done together mm -hmm. to see how the boy was. He's a grown up now. He's a lawyer. and. Um, he's doing great and the father's doing great too and he he just mentioned before we hung up the phone sort of as an aside that uh he had divorced the mother of the child and his wife and but he was now very happy and he was living with and then he gave the woman's name and the woman was named the same name as his sister that died all that tells me is we just never stop we keep working on it, working on it, working it through, transforming it, transmuting it. And the, one of the last stages for him was to marry someone by the name of the, the, the sister that he never knew. That's uh, such a helpful way to speak about it, I think, because you know, even myself personally, something will happen and, and I'll have a certain reaction and say, oh my God, haven't I worked this through yet? Like, <laughs> haven't I had enough therapy about this? Am I not aware enough about this? Why? You know, why? Why? Are, are, am I not done with that? So I have to imagine I'm not alone in feeling that way at times. And if you if we can stop being so preoccupied with psychopathology, we can sort of celebrate that. I mean, this, this goes back to some of the earliest developmental research that suggests that organisms don't forget for a reason. Mm -hmm. The reason is that, that it improves the species. So when, when you or I run across something we wish we were done with and we're not, what a wonderful thing. <clears throat>
so Michael, um, this is a little off, <laughs> off what uh, we uh, had talked about before the podcast, but you know, you were talking about separation and individuation and some of these ideas. And it seems that today we have a different circumstance where two examples I'll share. One um, was a situation where a parent was calling their child's professor at college to complain about a grade that uh, a, their child was given. Um, that struck me as, you know, someone in my generation says, like, like my parents didn't even know who my professors were, certainly wouldn't have known how to contact them, um, just was not anywhere even close to, to that involved. That's one example. Um, another example was somebody about 25 that was disgruntled about something going on in the workplace and their mother called the human resources department to talk with them about the way their child was being treated. So these are things that have come up that I've noticed um, maybe in just maybe in the, even in the last five years or so. Do you have any thoughts on what's going on with that? Oh, of course I do. <laughs> there are a few things about children and development that I don't have thoughts about. <laughs> Could you tell us? That doesn't Your mean they're worth anything, but yeah, I, I, this is going to be very controversial, of course, what I'm about to say, because it has to do with how we were as parents when our, when those very same children that we can't let go of now were very little. And I'm afraid that what many parents are finding, although it is completely inaccessible to them consciously, what they're finding is that they didn't get done. They, they weren't there, really, with their children when they were little. Uh, they birthed them, put them into some sort of daycare, usually an institutional daycare, not a, a relative, not a single caregiver for their child. And while politically and with respect to a number of other dimensions, that's wonderful, and it, it meant so many things for the family and for the mom herself as a woman. Um, I think many parents know fundamentally that they lost out and that maybe their child lost out and nothing dreadful has happened. And so it all looks fine. It all looks perfectly justified. But I, I fear, and, and frankly, it's a little more than fear. I really think conceptually, that some of the developmental work of parenthood just doesn't get done in the same way. We don't fuss it out with our two-year-olds and then finally let them go, so to speak, and um, be amazed at their uh, rebellion and their toughness, and also then aren't surprised or offended when Two seconds later, they fall down and need us terribly. Oh, can't have anybody but you, Mom, the one I just told to get out of my face because I want to pour my own juice. We live through all that in developmental sequence. We go through all of grade school, uh, kind of vaguely aware, but not really, that what's coming up soon is another time when our, our children are going to tell us uh, to go smoke a pipe. 
They got other fish to fry, other stuff to do. And we say, hurrah for you. I did a good job. It, I did exactly what I meant to do, which was to love you so much that you could someday throw me away temporarily. But you could, you could say, enough already, mom. I'm doing this on my own. I'm heading out into the world. That's normal, in my opinion, normal parent development. I think that isn't happening with many parents today. And as a result, they find their children, for example, going off to college, and they're clutching at them as if to say, oh, oh, wait, we're not done. We got more stuff to do, the parent-child stuff. Oh, I don't know, I can't, I don't think I can let you go. It's driving the kids crazy. It seems weird to the children. And to the parent, uh, it's not really understandable. It's not, it's not, there's not a conscious process here. It's just, I think, regret, maybe sorrow, maybe even grief over things that were lost. Hmm. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Professor um, was telling me last night, we were both volunteers at a cafe, and she's head of her department, and she's dealing with this the problem of, of phones in the classroom. And uh, it, it didn't seem confusing to her that one had the right, a professor had the right to set standards or limits for use of the telephone in the classroom. To my great surprise, however, she said that the problem really isn't the kids. The kids get it. The problem is the parents who are writing or calling the university saying, I need to be able to get a hold of my child at any time. And that professor so-and-so said my child could, couldn't look at his phone during class. I need to be able to get a hold of him at any time. Who is that talking? Yeah. That's someone who's not done, who can't release. And there's a reason why we can't release. The only reason I know, well, there's several actually, but the biggest reason I know we can't release somebody is that we're not done about them. Yeah, I suppose that would also possibly explain um, some of the devastation people seem to have also that about children leaving for college or moving away from home. And I do understand, you know, empty nest syndrome and, and this is, you know, oh, we're going to miss them. But that's different than devastation. Like I have seen people like, collapsing like very depressed having trouble functioning um it, it, it it's a whole uh different um thing that we're talking about than simply what we used to call empty nest syndrome thank you for joining us for this edition of attachment theory in action this episode was the 11th in our 12-part series with michael trout Please follow our site, www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts as well as previous episodes. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com. 
We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.